We're back into Galatians here tonight, and I invite you to turn your Bibles to Galatians. And we come into a very tricky text. We'll talk, we'll, we'll call it that for not, not much, uh, for not many other reasons. Um, what we're dealing with it in terms of the original languages and the translation of it and its uh, calling. And so we want to just let me just remind you where we have been. Uh, last week on Sunday morning, we dealt with uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, uh, looking at our Lord's um, first coming uh, at his nativity. Uh, but remember that we had skipped that to handle that from the week before. And so we've already really handled all the way through verse 7. Uh, and uh, actually a little bit farther than that uh, to verse 11. And uh, that's where we had left off. And so I want to go ahead and pick up in verse 11. And we're going to read uh, through verse 20 um, tonight. Okay, I don't think we'll get to verse 20, but I want to include verse 20. And because of its connection to verse 11, which you will see very obvious. Uh, and so... Galatians chapter 4, verse 11 through verse 20. God's word declares, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. You received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Let's go Lord in prayer before we get in our text this evening. Lord, I would do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to open your word. And uh, we recognize its authority. We recognize that it uh, is a message for um, us to not only know, um, but to live, to bring into our very lives. And we pray that you might help us by your spirit to do that tonight. And as always, you might guard this time from error, from the opinions of men, and that we might uh, receive the pure milk of the word, uh, that we might grow thereby. And uh, Lord, we do pray for all of this to your glory, honor, and praise, and not our own, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we um, are proceeding along in the argumentation of Paul with the Galatians, trying, pleading with them to not get any further involved, and in fact, to distance themselves from the Judaizers that had come into them. Um, we have seen several very clear arguments that he has put forth and supported and demonstrated, uh, among them being the fact that that's, they didn't come to Christ, they didn't come to their salvation via the law. They came without the law because Paul didn't teach the law. And we're going to see that a little bit reflected in here Possibly, depending upon how you want to handle the text, um, we see that a little bit reflected in his personal statements here. And so, uh, as somewhat of an extension of that idea of their first coming to Christ, 
he's going to share with them his personal experience with them. And so um, he's dealt with it in a theological framework of, you know, none of your sins are forgiven by the law. Uh, None of you receive the Holy Spirit by the law. Those all came apart from the law. They came simply by believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so all of those uh, theological aspects he has really uh, developed and, and presented. Now, how did you get the, how did you receive the, the gospel personally? And he's going to set himself up in opposition to those who have come in later with the Judaizing message. Uh, and he's going to talk about motives and about the relationship, the relational aspects. Um, and it kind of comes down to, don't you remember who I am and our relationship to each other? Uh, and don't you remember um, the premise of that relationship, the foundation of it, and the purpose of it? And, and he's going to call them to a little bit more of a, of a personal side. And we are right away recognize that this is bookended. This passage has uh, something in verse 11, something in verse 20 that is a warning. Uh, and the warning is, is that are you going to make my work vain? That is worthless, pointless. Did I come to you and expend all this energy and, and suffer all of these things for nothing? Have I done all this for nothing? Because you turned to Christ, then you turned away from Christ. And I got to tell you that I feel Paul's statement here. Um, have we done all this for nothing, in vain? Um, and uh, the whole idea in verse 20, I have my doubts about you. Uh, instead of me having confidence, you have put me in a position to have to question, um, did you genuinely receive any of that ministry of the gospel that I brought to you? And so he's calling them from a personal perspective um, he's not the one that ultimately is the judge of the heart. God is. But there is a basis of that relationship. Why put someone like Paul, who has been so vital to your Christian life, um, into this condition of genuinely feeling uh, and genuinely sensing that they're, you haven't produced anything in your Christian life and that in fact, the work and the effort and the energy that he did pour into you um, wasn't coming to any real fruit that lasts, that endures. And if you don't think that having fruit that endures is important to the minister, um, you need to uh, be more careful in your study of God's Word, um, because it is. And, and even if that fruitfulness is people being in opposition to you, um, that is a kind of fruitfulness that the prophets enjoyed and that even Paul had opposition. Peter and others, they had opposition. And they counted it a joy to suffer for Christ. Perhaps one of the worst conditions is to be in this floating place where you have no one actively opposing you and you have none that seem to be following after the message and there's a level of frustration and a level of disappointment there. For the minister, he needs to have fruit, and fruit can be formed in opposition, or fruit can be formed in in the reality of Christ being strengthened and growing in their faith of those that to whom he's ministering. And so, both of those are fruitfulness in ministry, and this is a longing that's in the heart of every minister. It just is. Uh, we want to see fruit, fruit that lasts, fruit that endures. 
Um, and Paul mentions this, of course, in the Corinthians, right? He talks to them on a very personal level. Hey, you know, was I wasting my time on you? And he even brings it up in Thessalonians, where he talks to the Thessalonians, you know, um, I was afraid that maybe I wasted my time on you guys. Uh, you put me in that condition, but then I got the message that you're from Timothy. Timothy came and reported to me and encouraged me that really you only have some questions about the end times, um, but that your faith is really very much intact. And so if you go to Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, you'll see that uh, idea that he has some genuine concerns when he doesn't see people walking um, in accordance with the teaching that he's given them. And no group has given him, well, maybe the Corinthians, but no other group outside the Corinthians has given Paul more cause for concern. And so he's concerned that uh, all this effort and energy, remember how much effort and energy he put into this. How many times did he, he visited them? First missionary journey, twice. There and back he visited those places. Went back and revisited them on the second missionary journey. That's a third trip through there. Um, and we find him uh, investing early on in his ministry substantial amounts of time there. Um, and the indication is, is that Galatians was written somewhere in that midst where that was really the extent of his ministry. Can you imagine if Paul really felt that it was in vain and just became so discouraged that he quit because the Galatians were such a failure? He would have never gotten to Macedonia. Philippi, Thessalonica, never gotten to Corinth, never gotten west. Um, and so it was, so this early book really shows his heart of ministry and he wants to make sure that it is, that there's a perseverance among the saints. Uh, remember that this is, these are the places that he visited in Acts that he says, you must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Um, he appointed them elders, he encouraged them and strengthened them. Those are the words used there in Acts uh, to encourage and strengthen, to build up them so that they would endure. And his expectation was that there would be lasting fruit there. So his, his concern, his fear that he says in verse 11 that uh, all this was for naught because um, you didn't endure. You just succumbed to the first influence that comes in that isn't... Um, of the scriptures isn't of Christ. So he's going to really produce and develop this argument from his personal relationship. So let's go ahead and read a little bit of this in verse 12. Um, I urge you to become like me for I became like you. And that has been variously translated over time and uh, in recent times particularly. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I really want to jump to the second phrase because even though he is going to use the argument from personal relationship with him, uh, he is also not making it the primary argument. In other words, um, he's saying, you haven't injured me, and that shouldn't be your number one concern. We don't want to hurt Paul's feelings. Um, that's really not what Paul's really concerned about. He's not concerned about whether he's going to continue in ministry. He's not, he doesn't want you to think that if you, do, if you, if you don't have this loyalty to him that somehow he's going to be so hurt and devastated by it that he's just going to crumble um he says you haven't you're not doing injury to me you're not really um hurting me um in this 
but you are producing in me a big giant question marks over your condition. Um, The one you're hurting is yourself. And because I love you and I'm concerned about you, this this is why I'm writing. And so it's not because you've hurt my feelings, and that's the same thing in Corinth. He makes a very strong statement there uh, that this isn't about my feelings. And we even see it in some of his other books, um, in Colossians as well, uh, and uh, we, we find that whole idea that, yeah, he has poured a lot of his energy and his, his uh, sensitivities into their ministry. He loves them, and, he, and he's committed to them, and he also is passionate about their Christian walk, but uh, his... His own relationship with God isn't dependent upon them and his own ministry. But it certainly has an effect, um, as we're going to see here shortly. So let's back up into this verse uh, 12 and deal with a difficult passage of interpretation, uh, or translation really is the problem. Uh, And by the way, there's one other phrase in here that is uh, variously understood, and so we're going to handle that as well. So his statement is, I want you, brethren, to become like me, um, There, which we say, okay, he wants to be an example. I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. I say, well, how in the world did Paul become like them, and why? how is it that he wants them to become like him, in what manner or fashion? And so, again, this has been variously set. Some translators, because of the difficulty of the Greek here, um, have made it uh, basically say, um, you need to see things from my perspective because I've been looking at things through your perspective. Uh, And that is one translation that is used. That I'm inviting you to look at this from my point of view as I've already looked at it from your point of view. Um, So now let's put yourself into my shoes kind of thing. And so some have interpreted or translated it in that fashion um, and, uh, and handled it just as a simple statement declaring that idea of can you shift your thinking around. Um, others, I think more persuasively, have taken the words to, to reflect upon this whole idea of are you a Jew or a Gentile? And Paul's statement is... Um, premised upon the fact that you're going to become like me because I already became like you. That is, I have already brought to you the ministry of the gospel without requiring you to submit to the law. I didn't bring you the law. I came to you really almost as a Gentile. I didn't come to you really with the gospel um, as a Jewish thing, but as a gospel to all men, uh, apart from the law, as Christ completed the law. And so I came to you really um, not saying, I am this Pharisee and rabbi, I am this individual and coming with all the accoutrements of the law, but rather I came to you as you were, as a Gentile. I spoke to you as an equal. I didn't look down upon you because you were Gentile dogs, nothing like that. And so now I'm inviting you to become like me, which is someone that is not trying to keep the law and please God, but rather someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, That sense of follow me as I follow Christ. And so um, there have been several arguments and developments that promote that 
view of this passage. He's really trying to press that. Um, But again, the foundation for this is really just to lay out a personal relationship. He's going to rehearse the circumstances of their of some of their first uh, visits and their first coming to Christ, which he's already referenced earlier theologically, and now we're going to deal with that, with the event that happened, the experience that they had. Um, and so it's appropriate that he simply says, and if you draw out what he's brought, essentially, um, I want you to uh, uh, recognize that the foundation of our relationship was never the law. The foundation of the relationship of me as the one bringing you the gospel and you as the recipients of the gospel, the way that happened, really, the law wasn't a part of that. Um, God's grace was a part of that and how God's grace ministered to both of us in the midst of that. So let's go into the how it happened. Um, here's what they know, verse 13. Because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first and um, we might say, well, who are these people specifically that he's mentioning in this verse? Um, and uh, there's a lot of question about whether Galatians was written to northern Galatia or southern Galatia. Uh, and who are, are involved in that? Because when we get to the book of Acts, there's really not a reference when we get to, went into northern Galatia. Remember, he tried to go up there and share the gospel. He visited a few places. Then he tried to press into Asia and the spirit went, closed a couple doors and then he ended up jumping off from Troas into Macedonia, from the Macedonian vision. Um, so the northern Galatia was part of the second missionary journey. Southern Galatia was that first journey where they, they came up through Antioch, Pisidia, and, and, uh, and uh, Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe. And then he backtracked down through there with Barnabas. And so the question is, which group are we talking about? And... Uh, um, and again, there's various ideas, and I don't know that it matters intrinsically to the passage, but because of the references about personal things um, that they know that we might question or, or uh, uh, work, or struggle with, I'm sorry, struggle over, um, we're just going to take one view, and I'm just going to take one view and run with it. And that view is that uh, it was out of physical infirmity that Paul ended up in Derby. Remember what happened in Lystra. Lystra is where he healed the man. And they all wanted to sacrifice to him and Barnabas as Greek gods. Um, they prevented that. And then the Jews came in and persuaded them that these were troublemakers. Isn't that funny? You go from wanting to worship them as gods to then Paul, if you recall, there was stoned. And they thought they'd killed him and drug him out of the city and threw him in the garbage heap down at the dump. So they took him to the dump and dumped his body. Didn't want to bury it, nothing. They was going to dump it there. And it says that he got up and he went back into the city. And the next day in the morning, him and Barnabas left for Derby. And so the question, and now Luke doesn't give us any idea of Paul's physical Side effects. We don't know, and so that's why people say, well, that's possible, but it could have been that God completely healed him on that occasion. But uh, it's possible that he arrives in Derby, having been driven out of its sister city, Lystra, just a few miles away. They're just, a, they're this close on the map. And so uh, just a few miles away, he has to travel to Derby, and the idea is that he's just been stoned. 
um, and thought to be dead. And so he would have arrived in Derby, necessitated that he had to get out of Lystra because they are going to kill him, um, and arrives in Derby with a lot of physical injury, possibly. And so um, the idea is that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. That is that I came to you and I ended up on your doorstep because of physical infirmity. That out of that, that's where I come to minister to you. That when I arrived, I had a problem. And uh, that, that in my flesh that uh, required uh, some assistance. And so we find in verse 14, my trial, which was in my flesh, pretty important. Actually, some people actually were trying to contend that he was suffering from depression or something. We, we try to impose so much of modern thought into things. It's just absurd. Um, it's in his flesh. That means that uh, he was um, pretty battered up, whatever it was. Um, you, you, it's kind of interesting. If you want to do some study, um, how much conjecture comes into this? They're trying to say he had malaria and so then they were trying to find, was, was there malaria in this part of the country or this part of the world at that time? And um, Is it that important? Um, the fact is he arrived there. He had physical uh, infirmity, physical problems. He calls it his trial in his flesh. Some have wanted to compare this to the thorn in the flesh that he talks about in Corinth. Um, but uh, the, the declaration there is that the people of Galatia did not despise or reject him because of his physical problems that it brought him there. Um, they received him as a messenger or an angel of God, even as Christ himself. And so they accepted him in. Um, they believed the gospel. They, they had this tender relationship one with another, um, in which Paul had physical needs, they had spiritual needs, and they met each other's needs. And so as they ministered to him physically, he ministered to them spiritually, and we find that because of that infirmity, uh, many come to know Christ. And that is comparable to what the events described in Acts around Derby, which would then encompass all the southern part of Galatia. It doesn't exclude the northern part from the book, um, but it certainly encompasses that um, area. And so we find that, you know, here's the physical trial that Paul was, had uh, endured, um, and that as they uh, received him, uh, instead of rejecting him, you know, I don't know if you've ever considered what a person looks like under that condition, having been stoned to death. Um, that's a gruesome thing, and you, uh, unfortunately... In our modern age, you can actually see it being done in the Middle East. You can get on Facebook or on YouTube, and you can find videos today of people being stoned to death in um, places like Iran and uh, Syria and wherever ISIS is. You'll find them stoning people to death, and you can see that. It's a gruesome, uh, brutal thing. Um, now, Jewish law is a little bit different than how the Muslims perpetuate it today, um, it required the victim or the accuser to take a large stone and they would hold the body and the first large stone would be struck on the head. Um, and the idea is that that would, uh, if not knock them out or kill them, uh, would at least concuss them, that they would not uh, be able to really recall the rest. Um, and so there was a little bit more <laughs> um, 
little less brutality to it than uh, in the past. But the result of this is is a gruesome sight. And so he's going to have these injuries, unless God had supernaturally healed him completely, um, he's going to have some pretty gruesome injuries. And he says, you received me. Instead of saying, oh, boy, where'd you go? You are one ugly thing. What happened to you? Um, he received him. They received him. They received him. Uh, they allowed him to minister. Uh, he and, he and uh, whether it's Barnabas or whether it's Silas with him, uh, they received him, treated him extraordinarily well. Uh, and this kind of harkens back to another example. I think verse 14 is a great example of another people that were confronted with a strange-looking character, um, and they received him nonetheless, and that was the people of Nineveh. You ever think about what they got? <laughs> um, you spend a few days in the, in the belly of an animal, you're going to come out smelling and looking different than when you went in. And so he shows up in Nineveh, having spent some time in the belly of a fish, and people received his message and repented. And so this isn't uh, uncalled or unmatched in history um, of God's people. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, sometimes it's it's one of the uh, evidences of the genuine reception. Uh, it's compared, contrast, that's a comparison. A comparison would have been Jonah and Nineveh. Uh, the contrast, I think, would have been uh, the recipient, re- receipt, one of my favorite examples, um, is the way, the manner of a man being treated by his own people um, because he was bald. Remember that? You know, the children come out and yell, Elijah, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head, and make fun of his physical appearance. And uh, a she-bear comes out of the woods and kills them all. Um, I had one young man very early in my ministry, where I was just starting to lose a little bit of hair, and uh, he just thought that was pretty funny, and, you know, he was 14, 15 or something. And so I showed him that pass, and he says, can you do that? I said, do you want to find out? So um, so David never tested that any further than that. David Bales never put that any further than that. He kind of left that one alone and didn't mess with me anymore after he, show, after he saw that. But um, we find this, this is one of the hallmarks of genuine reception as we recognize that it's not a physical attraction thing that's getting us to the gospel. In fact, Paul shows up... Um, pretty unattractively, uh, you know, whether he's sick or injured, whichever one, they're going to care for him. And in the midst of that, um, they, he is, they're going to receive a blessing. Uh, and that comes to verse 15, which is another challenging translation issue uh, here in verse 15. Um, what then was the blessing to you um, or that you enjoyed? Um, and, and whether it's a question, um, some translations will have uh, when I that when I got there that that was a place of blessing for you to minister there or that I received blessing from you some have translated this in that fashion um, the place where I received blessing from you and then he uses an idiom for the day uh, many have said well this is because Paul was blind that they would have plucked out their own eyes and gave, given them to me uh, but we've actually found this very same phrase used in other Greek writing, uh, and it seems to be kind of a common phrase. Uh, t- 
talking about a tenderness and a willingness to share oneself and resources with others. Um, let me just give you a, one that we would use in our day and age. He'll give you the shirt off his back. Now, does that mean you came and showed up shirtless? No. We recognize that what he means is that he will expend his resources for your benefit, even down to the very fundamental resources of food and clothing. And if he has to cost him something. Well, this is the Greek comparable statement that uh, you pull your eyes out for him. And here, take my eyes if you need them. Uh, obviously, no one can really do that. Uh, they didn't really have a good transplant surgeons back then that I know of. And so it became a, a, a figure of speech that uh, they just were willing to do whatever was necessary to care for his physical needs. He says, do you remember that? I didn't come to you strong and, and with this attractive message and this, and this uh, fancy um, program. I rather came to you very humble. I came to you in need. I came to you ugly. I came to you uh, where you had to minister to me. And in the midst of that, you received the truth. And so that was the foundation of our relationship was you cared for me, I ministered the gospel to you, and there was a real tenderness there and a, and a trust that was, that was bidirectional. They trusted him, and he had to put his trust into them of caring for him. And so out of this trusting, intimate relationship, hey, you know, we have history. You know me. Uh, don't you remember I haven't changed. Have you changed? Don't you remember the times we've spent together? Don't you remember the investment in each other's lives? Um, don't you remember the things we suffered together, the things we enjoyed together? The, don't you remember all of that? Um, that somehow because I'm away now that you, and someone shows up that you never knew who has a different gospel and you're giving them an audience? What's that about? And again, this isn't his strongest argument. He's already given most of his strong arguments, but it is a argument of validity that if you have a man of God that is ministering the word of God, um, as long as he persists in that and he gives you a strong warning and you have someone else that contradicts him coming into your life, um, that you have to examine that carefully and say, who do you trust? Well, ultimately, we trust God's word but we also recognize that there is history there. Well, who has shown uh, uh, the evidence, the, the background that they are trustworthy, that they are not self-interested? Um, which one can I examine more fully? Well, the one I know better, um, unless he has gone off in the deep end and changed radically, um, I have no reason to doubt that. And so when another comes in, um, the doubt should be cast upon this one, not the first one that we have more intimacy with, that we have more confidence in, we ought to. And so on the basis of all of this personal relationship, he comes to this question then, um, out out of our intimate relationship, out of all the times we spent together, all the love we showed one to another, all the benefit we had one to another. Verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. 
So now we have come to this point that I have to confront you and correct you. I have to rebuke you because you're listening to the wrong people. You're letting these Judaizers come in and take over. You're, they have credentials behind their name, but they have no power of the Spirit in their life. They have no connection to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to call you to bear on this. I haven't moved. My message is still the same, Paul says. My life is still the same. And so these you have to deal with this. Now you have two opposite teachings. And this one you believe first and you were you were uh trained in it. It was built upon the truth of the gospel. It was demonstrated to be truthful because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the forgiveness of sins. All of that transpired there. Now someone comes in and says, no, you have to have the law. You have to be circumcised as well. Um, you have to keep these all this mosaic law as well, or you can't be a, per, a child of God, and you have to become Israel and just, not just Christian. And so... Um, the question mark now has to be over those lives. I'm going to correct you. That's not ever a fun process. Paul didn't enjoy writing the book of Galatians any more than he enjoyed writing the book of Corinthians um, uh, to correct people. First or second Corinthians. He says that these were letters that brought him anguish. I mean, they, he, he talks about his fear and his, and his concern and... and uh, uh, he uses very powerful language. He's going to use it here very soon uh, about the, these others that have come in. But uh, he, he asks them to remember their relationship with him and say, now, I'm going to tell you the truth, and the truth is you are jeopardizing not your relationship with me. You're jeopardizing your relationship with God. And that's going to injure you. And because I care for you, it is my responsibility as your intimate friend to warn you. And this isn't because I want something out of it. This is because, you know, we're intimates. We, we have known each other. We have cared for each other. And now you're treating me like an enemy because I'm telling you the truth. Well, this is what intimate friends do. They challenge each other and they tell each other the truth. They tell it like it is. They don't um, hold back and they don't um, uh, parse words. I mean, they they just put them right out there and just declare it to be so, um, what they see and observe. And, And there's a place... There's a level of relationship that there's just a little polite quietness, right? That I don't know someone very well, and I see them doing some weird stuff, and I just, I'm not an intimate friend with them, and so I'll just, if it affects me or people around me, I might politely say that's not appropriate or something like that. Um, and, and there's just a polite correctness, right? That I'm going to correct them politely, and... Uh, and if they resist that all, I'm just going to back off and just say, you know, it's your life. And that's a level of apathy there. There really is a level of, of a distantness, of not intimacy. But if it's someone that I know really well, let's say my family, and they're, con- and they're involved in the exact same behavior, I have a hugely different response, don't I? 
uh, maybe even over the top. What are you doing? There's not going to be a politeness about it. There's going to be a very directness about it. There's going to be a a demonstration of of some feelings, of of some passion. There's going to be an expectation that you're going to listen. Why? Because we have an intimate relationship. The more intimate the relationship, the more direct the correction is and less politeness that is used, strangely. So Paul here says, I'm telling you the truth, and yeah, I'm using some pretty strong terms. <laughs> and in fact, in a little bit, he's going to say, I wish they'd go cut themselves off. Um, he's going to make some statements that we might say, well, that's kind of impolite. Well, he has a foundation for that, and the foundation is his intimate relationship with them. All right, They've seen each other at their worst. They've seen him beaten and battered. He's seen them and all their sin that he's going to list off for us later on, chapter 5. They've seen each other's worse. And now they have this intimate relationship, and on the basis of that, he feels compelled to call them on the carpet. And that doesn't make him your enemy. In our modern sensitivities, um, that does, unfortunately. You tell somebody they're doing wrong, they get offended, they get huffy about it, they think that you aren't being kind, that you aren't being loving, just like they have the same accusation against God, by the way, that we talked about this morning. Um, he's not kind and loving because he is being, he's judging me. He's, uh, he can't do that. And because of our perverted view of love, we think that, well, um, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And I've had that happen to me many, many, many times in ministry where you call people on their behavior, on their words, and you say, well, that's not right. It's not godly. It's not biblical. Um, and it's sin. And, oh, I've been called the worst pastor in the world. I've been called a hypocrite. I've been called uh, a lot of things I don't even want to remember. Um, why? Because you told them the truth. Because of an intimacy as a pastor. I'm your intimate. I'm your pastor. I'm involved in your life and your family's life on a somewhat regular basis. And um, sometimes that requires some correction. And the more intimate the relationship, the more impolite might seem the correction. I don't mince words with my children. And I don't really mince words very much with members of my church. Now, if you're just occasionally attending here every now and then, you're going to have a very different kind of relationship with me because you don't have the intimacy. And so uh, Paul calls and says, Do I become your enemy because I tell you the truth directly and forthrightly because I thought we were intimate friends? Do I become your enemy? Am I the guy you want to avoid now? And you're going to run off to these guys who are just doing it for their own interests. They don't really care about you. They have their own agenda. Um, I don't have that. I'm not even there. And so he describes them. So there's the intimate, humble beginnings in their relationship. So how? what's the relationship with these other people? Very quickly, verse 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. They want to exclude you, which is um, probably better translated. They want to isolate you. As they want to 
break off your other relations with other people or strain them. Um, and that is a very uh, effective and much-used tactic of false teachers, even to this day, is to isolate people and start causing you to question, well, they don't really care about you. Those people over there aren't very loving. They don't, I, I'm the guy that really cares, Well, they, but they don't have anything behind it. Um, and he says they... Um, uh, want you to, and they want you to be zealous, not for Christ. Do you see that? They want you to be zealous for them. They, they want to invoke a personal loyalty that Paul, even though he's talking about their personal relationship, has already disclaimed that, right? He says, you haven't hurt me. Don't worry. I'm still going to be the minister God calls me to be wherever you land in this, but... But just remember that who do you trust? The one that you had this beginning with or the ones that are coming in with their fancy package and their, and their uh, beguiling words um, and all that surrounds that, that tell you everything you want to hear and not the truth. Who are you going to believe? These are going to try to isolate you and try to strain all of your natural uh, godly relationships or those that are going to come in and uh, try to support those relationships and encourage them. And so uh, we find that again, he says, you know, I count you as my children. So yeah, I'm going to be direct. I'm going to be honest with you. I count you as my children and I'm putting all the labor. I'll, I'll start over if I have to uh, because I want Christ to be formed in you. They want themselves to be formed in you. I want Christ to be formed in you. They want you to be loyal to them. I want you to be loyal to Christ. And because I am seeking to be loyal to Christ, if you're seeking to be loyal to Christ, we're on the same page. We're going the same direction. And we'll be be able to get along just fine. But the conflict comes in because these people are not calling you to Christ. They're calling you to themselves because how do you know if you've kept the law good enough? Well, the rabbi has to tell you that. Why do you think the Sadducees and the Pharisees had so much power? The law empowered them because the people looked to them to say, are we keeping the law just right? They weren't just the lawyers. They were the judges for the people. And Christ's work of completing the law just yanks the carpet right underneath them. They have no foundation at all for their influence over people now. So these people come in and they court you. They, they, they <laughs> to use a phrase that we use in our family, they tell you um, promises they don't intend to keep. Um, that's what you do when you, when you date someone, right? You give them candy, chocolates, flowers, and promises they don't intend to keep. That's from Beauty and the Beast. Paul says, you're not going to get that from me because I don't want you to be formed in my image. I want you to certainly follow my example, but the example I'm putting forth to you isn't be me. The example I'm putting forth to you is be Christ. Be formed in the image of Christ because that's my desire. And we see that really developed in Paul's later writing, particularly in Philippians where he goes into it extensively to say, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I've had to do over the course of my Christian walk to have Christ formed in me. 
I've had to count all this stuff as garbage. I've had to embrace all of this. I've had to diligently strive after these other areas of life. And I've had to pursue them relentlessly to become like Christ so I don't get disqualified. So even there in Philippians, you have the whole possibility of disqualification, right? That Paul himself was concerned about for himself. Well, these statements in here, I have my doubts about you. I'm afraid for you. I've labored in vain for you. Um, Boy, they take on some weight then when we start thinking about it in those terms. And so here's his final little argument. Not final. This is the the next development that he has. Um, And he says, listen, um, just look at it personally, from a personal perspective. Look at our history and look at their history with you. Um, That alone should tell you lots. And just Sometimes you just have to slap people on the side of the head and just remind them, you know, who you are. Um, sometimes i got to do that with my kids. I'm your dad. Nobody cares more about what happens in your life hardly than me. Maybe your mom. I'm your parent. You know, I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm not here to, to uh, get you involved in anything uh, that isn't good for you. I want... All I want is good and beneficial for you. Um, and so uh, I have to remind them that every now and then. You know, we're not here trying to make you miserable. Trying to hear, we're here to make you successful, to make you godly and righteous. Well, it's the same thing as a pastor. Sometimes I have to come up and slap people and say, hey, I'm your pastor. I have your interests at heart. I'm not just trying to make your life miserable. I'm trying to bring you into the image of Christ as best as I can by example and by teaching and sometimes by um, telling you the truth and saying that sin is sin and error is error and you're heading down a wrong road and stand on the corner and yell and scream and jump up and down and wave your hands trying to get you to turn around and go the right way. Not because it benefits me, because of you. It benefits you. Because my Christian walk is not dependent upon whether anyone in my ministry responds. It makes it a whole lot easier, though, to minister when people respond. (laughs) Much more enjoyable, but it's not dependent upon it. And so, Paul, and by the way, Paul's going to say that in other passages. You know, you could really help me out here and encourage me in the ministry simply, well, what's encouraging you in ministry? If you will just live it out. If you'll be consistent and faithful in your Christian life, that's all the encouragement I need. It really is. All the encouragement I need to, to pursue and to, and to press on and to engage myself more and more in ministry, um, what's going to encourage your path? Pastor Appreciation Month was in October, so I can talk about it now because it's gone. Um, I don't need a gift Pastor Appreciation Month. I don't need flowers. I don't need cards. You know what I need? I need you to walk with the Lord. And that's the greatest encouragement to ministry, is to see you obeying the Word of God. That you're investing yourself in it, and that you're walking according to the Spirit, not in the flesh. And I'll just smile and say, praise the Lord, and I'm going to get next week's message ready for them, because they want to hear it. And that's true, I think, for every Bible teacher that's the genuine article uh, across the board. Okay? Well, let's have our prayer.
Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the testimony of Paul and in its right use. And Lord, give us that kind of intimacy with one another, um, that we are open to um, allowing us to minister to one another and to just admit our needs. And whether they be spiritual or um, relational or uh, physical, whatever, that we might be ready to minister one to another and build a relationship there. Um, And Lord, give us that courage to do so and knowing that uh, the real purpose that we're here is not for the building, it's not for the budget, it's not for um, anyone's ego. It's really just to grow in your word and in your person and to become more like you and to spur each other on to love and good deeds. And Lord, With that in mind, uh, we just pray you might guard this assembly, this church, that we might keep that perspective before us and that nothing else might become important to us of this world's ideas of success that would cause us to stray or to give attention to those that have other motives. And so, Lord, we pray that we might minister um, and sustain that ministry uh, as Paul did and as he called the Galatians to, that we might do it one to another. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.